Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf Pechet. Pechet, page 88. Um... Okay, we are the Gemara, we and the Gemara, are working off of this Mishnah, which establishes the case, right, you'll all recall, of the woman whose husband has disappeared, she get, has testimony, she's received testimony that he is dead, and he, she remarries on the basis of that testimony. Then he reappears, and there's a big discussion, you know, can she, what is supposed to happen to her? Does she need to separate, the, the straight-up Mishnah case is, she has to separate both from husband number one and husband number two. We discussed all of this. And then there's some question over, you know, under certain circumstances or a certain certain set of the sage's opinions that she could actually go back to the first husband but not stay with the second husband and so on. So one of the questions that is raised, and we're going to discuss it, or the Gemara discusses it at length on this stuff, is the question of that testimony and how stringent the rules of accepting testimony are, are applied under these circumstances, because, you know, let's say you were talking about a regular case of, I don't know, damages or injury or something like that. When you come before a court, the standard, the basic standard of proof requires two witnesses who, when examined separately, their stories are corroborated, right? They corroborate, corroborate each other. Um, but in this case, it's there's a discussion over whether one witness would be accepted. And the rationale for accepting one one witness is, you know, to help this woman because it, it's hard sometimes to get testimony that people know, in fact, that they've seen that the, the husband had died, let's say. And so if one person says it, isn't that enough to, to enable her to kind of, whatever, make her peace with the story and then move on? The problem, of course, is that if it's only one witness's testimony and then uh, on the basis of that witness's testimony, she marries again right, then all of that second marriage ends up being a problem. And so perhaps we should say, let's establish that you need a higher a higher standard of proof to make sure that when she's going to marry again, the first husband is really dead. Meaning, I don't mean this in a, in an, it sounds very abrupt, but the point is that the, the status of, her status as a widow should be firmly established, right? That's, that's the question. And the Gemara says, here, I'm on Ahmed Aleph, and the discussion carries on to Ahmed Bet, but uh, we're going to break it up, and your Daniel, you'll talk in the middle. Um, you were so stringent upon her, meaning that here you've got a person who got married on the basis of one witness, and then she suffers, you know, this stringent decision afterwards that she has to separate, she can't go back to the first husband, and so on. Um, because, and Rabbi Zera's point is, because you were lenient at the beginning. The beginning meaning you accepted testimony that it was just the, the the one witness to provide testimony that the husband was no longer alive. So the, his position is, you know, the Gemara maybe, I'm not, it's not clear to me whether this is Rabbi Zera still or the Gemara's comment on Rabbi Zera. This is, you know, don't be stringent at the end, meaning you don't want to put, you don't want to be in a position where you have to tell her that she needs to separate from both men, right? That's a much more stringent position. Don't be so lenient at the beginning, meaning don't rely on just one witness. Make sure that you have enough testimony, enough proof to carry on. And the Gemara answers, Mishum iguna akilu because of the case of agunot, right? This is this is the exactly where 
classic case of, of an aguna shows up, meaning a woman who is bound in marriage to a first husband who cannot be found, right? In this case, right? He's presumed dead. There's testimony that he's dead. Why wouldn't we then rely on that one test, that one witness? Uh, well, we wouldn't because you want to have a stronger burden of proof. No, the Gemara says we're going to be more lenient because we want to enable her to go on with her life. Now, this has, of course, become a much more complicated, political, politicized issue in the pre present era because of things like recalcitrant husbands, or for that matter, wives, where people are refusing to give, or for that matter, receive a get, and then the people remain bound, especially the woman remains bound in marriage, to in the, in the case that's supposed to go to divorce. That's not the case here. Classic aginut, as we've discussed in the past, and as I'm sure we'll discuss again, is where there can be no divorce or, for that matter, no acknowledgement of a death because nobody knows. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. It's it, there, was a, there were very painful phone calls that were made on 9-11 um, from people who were concerned about the Salacha, who didn't want to leave their wives, Agunot, meaning in the, what if what if he survived? What if we just couldn't find him? That kind of thing. And, uh, you know, there was one very prominently known case where the man spoke to his wife and then he called back and he left a message on the answering machine that said, I am on this, you know, very high flight, 101st floor of the World Trade Center. And it became very clear that that meant, everybody understood what that meant, right? And it was then proof that she was not going to be on Aguna. So the, this is the Gemara that says, we are makil, we are lenient. The courts aim to be lenient in a situation that might lead to a woman being chained for an indefinite period of time. Again, nowadays it's more complicated and not all courts are work that hard to be so lenient, but I will shut up about that for now. Yardina, over to you. Yeah, so I, I think some of what this staff is doing is, is it's taking uh, different halachic scenarios and trying to line it up with the idea, can you rely on one witness in other halachic areas? Which is interesting to me because I could see how one could say that in this particular scenario, it's an exception. Like it, it's not the same as other halakhic cases. So why is it important to the Gemara to see where it lines up, right? So they go through a whole question about chela, right? About fat that maybe you're not sure about, about hegdash. They, they, they try to find like some type of parallel. Reject it. Um, and, and, but I want to go through one of the ones, but then they go, so those are sort of the ones they go through where you read it and you're sort of like, okay, but it's like not a marriage case. It's a totally different type of case. You know, I, I don't even know why they would, um, you know, why they would try to find that parallel there. So I do find that interesting. Trying to say, you know, that this is where we get all of these things about the exception. Um, uh, you know, I, I still find it puzzling that they want to find a parallel from something that, again, just doesn't seem as serious as an issue of as an aguna. But they bring another interesting one. Rava brings an interesting challenge to sort of question this premise of Rav that one witness is enough. Mati Rava. So Rav challenges him and he quotes a Bryce here. Minayan Shaim Lo Ratsa. From where do we know that if a Kohen doesn't want? And what we're talking about here is a Kohen who apparently doesn't want to separate himself from Tuma or from a woman that he's not allowed to marry. 
Dapnu. The court has to strike him. That's literally what it means until he's obeys. In other words, the, the Beitin is obligated to basically remove the Kohen from Tuma, from an un, you know, a prohibited marriage, even it's by force because they have to sort of, as Raji says, you know, maintain his kedusha to maintain his status. So Rabbi now is going to, you know, give an analysis of this price. And he says, hey, Chidami, so what's this Bryce's case with a with a prohibited woman? So if you say it's a case where she did not marry one of witnesses, so what's this case? You have two witnesses that testify that a woman's husband had died. And on the basis of that testimony, she marries a coin. She's a widow. She marries a coin headshot. Right. And the coin was not one of those two witnesses. Their marriage, a second pair of witnesses come and say that at the time that she married the coin, right, her first buzz, her first husband had actually been alive and he only died after the marriage. Or right. Even if the coin she married was one of the witnesses who actually testified that her first husband had died. Right. And in this case, she didn't say I'm certain Right, low kamar. She doesn't say, "I'm certain that my first husband is dead." It would. It, it's. It's necessary. It's needed to say that you have to strike him again, because in other words, the coin and the woman were both not certain that the testimony of the second set of witnesses is false, and therefore there's a possibility that basically they entered into this marriage in a state where it actually was adultery. The woman then is considered to be a zona, right? Zona again is just the the halachic term used for a woman who's with somebody who she shouldn't be with, um, and so therefore goes. She really should be prohibited to her husband, this kohen, and we have to separate them. So the question is, why would the Torah to teach us that they have to be separated by by force? So it's not. Rather, it's not clear that the Bryce is dealing where she married one of her witnesses. Like, let's say the Cohen was one of the two witnesses. The Ka'amar Barile. And she also said, I'm certain that my husband died, right? Like she says, I know my husband died. And then the second pair of witnesses come and say her first husband was actually alive at the time that they married and maybe died later. And her new husband still refuses to separate from her, right? Alma Vikatani uh, Dapnu. Sorry. And so the Bryce teaches us that in that case, he really, he has to be forced to separate from her. Right? We need, evidently, like we need this law in that case that we take her away from him. So this seems to not fit with Rav's ruling. Right? How does this not fit with Rav's ruling? Because this price is holding that even where the Kohen and the woman claim with, like, with absolute certainty, they're going to say, no, this was actually a, a, a valid marriage. We don't accept them. We don't accept it. And we force them to separate because there's a doubt here that maybe it was actually, you know, it, it, maybe uh, they shouldn't have actually been married. So what we could conclude from this is, is that there's other situations where there's a non-Kohen, right? Where uh, a second witness could assert or say whether or not the first husband is still alive right? and any other relations, you know, could actually be considered to be adulterous the couple could also uh, could also separate, right? But Rub actually ruled that in that kind of case, the couple wouldn't need to separate. So in other words, what they're trying to say is we have this particular case of a Kohen where we say, Rav is saying, this price is saying 
There's this case of the Kohen. We force him to separate. Why would we not deduce by the same principle that if the second witness comes and says in a non-Kohen situation that, no, the husband was actually alive, they would have to separate, right? Because we do this with the Kohen. And Rav would actually say they don't need to. So the Gemara basically defends Rav and says, Easter Kohuna Shani, that the prohibitions with the Kohen is different. So actually what the Bryce is teaching us is something that's a special humra just for a Kohen. Uh, whereas Rav, when he talks about that we don't make them parade, this has to deal with a non, it's specifically cases of non-Kohanim. Or you could say, my Dapnu, what does it mean by strike him? Dapnu be'edim. It means we strike him uh, from uh, to refrain from initially bear, you know, marrying this woman based on the two witnesses' ter- testimony by basically trying to find other witnesses who can testify to the opposite. In other words, striking him doesn't mean we like, it's not a physical thing. It's not that we, that we force him to, right? But it's, what it's saying is he actually can, can stay with her, according to Rav, but it means is that when the best in scenes that a coin is intended a woman who was declared to be permitted to marry because of two witnesses, they need to make a special effort to see, are there any conflicting witnesses to this and bring them? In other words, the DAP new means court really needs to do a lot of work ahead of time to make sure that there's nobody who would contradict this. And once they're able to do that, they can, you know, go ahead and get married. And if they do get married, you would still hold by Rav that you wouldn't force them to actually separate. And then finally, there's another answer here, right, that the Bryce is dealing with a case where the second set of witnesses come first and only afterwards she's married. And this Bryce is actually, it's a totally different opinion. It's the opinion of Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Menachem, uh, the son of Rabbi Yossi which is uh, this, according to this opinion earlier, that Rav holds that, that Rav Menachem, the son of Rav Yossi, he allows them to stay married only if their marriage took place before the second set of witnesses testified. So what this Bryce is talking about, which says they can't stay married, refers to a case where they married after the second set of witnesses came and said, hey, your husband is actually still alive. So, uh, you know, I think what we see here is there, there's two things in mind. One is the DAP is trying to figure out, and again, this was not the piece that I read at all. Can we find parallel cases where we accept the testimony of one witness? The other thing that's going on in this is we're trying to see the limits of Rub's opinion that we would not force her to get divorced should somebody come later and say like, no, we found out your husband was alive. And even in this case with a Kohen, even though we have sort of an explicit price that seems to say that you would have to make them separate, we see that the halach, they're trying to throw in a lot of opinions to sort of say like, nah, maybe we could still hold by right. This one that says, maybe with a coin, we want to be stricter. But the other two opinions, that even in the case of a coin, we may be able to say that we wouldn't force them uh, to separate. And I think that's really because like the Gemara understands it is very difficult to make people separate. Once the marriage is done, and I think we sort of have to have an assumption it was sort of done under good faith, it, it, it's to give the power of halacha, again, I, I think we have to be sensitive to like, news. Like you could see 
in that time, like, I think these were genuine mistakes that actually were made. And in a way, if people were under threat that they could somehow, you know, be forced to divorce late, I think that's kind of like what the basis of Rub's opinion is. Nobody would move forward in their life. You would just be living in fear or it also would just create so much havoc. This couple, this marriage wasn't actually good because somebody came later. Like, I think the halacha and Rev's opinion in particular needs to create some type of order in a world where information is actually very difficult to get. This is not our modern world at all. And I, and I guess what I want to be sensitive to is even in our modern world where things are recorded, you have video, you have tape, we still often disagree sometimes about how things actually happen. So even more so in a world where like nothing's actually recorded, everything has to be by eyewitness and by people's memory. And just to complicate matters, the Gemara goes on in its efforts to understand Rav's statement, right? Meaning Rav's statement contradicts, on the face of it anyway, it contradicts the basis, the basic position in the Mishnah. The basic position in the Mishnah is that she's got to be, she has to separate from both men, first husband and second husband. So you're Dana, now you've gone through the opinion that says Rav's statement was saying that she could stay with a second husband, but then Ravashi comes along and says, oh, one second, Lotate say that when, when Rav, when Rav says lo the Rav lo harishon. That really it means that he she can go back to the first husband because the second husband was not therefore it was therefore not a case of under duress or whatever we're gonna say. And instead of saying she can stay with the second husband, we say she could go back to the first husband. And the second case didn't um, nullify her right to be with the first husband, right? So now meaning. As much as I feel like I understand exactly what you're saying, Yardina, that that the whole position here is to try to help out these people, right? Um, but I feel like it really is a very, very muddy situation because can she go back to the? Can she stay with the second husband, which you know then leaves the first husband high and dry? Can she go back to the first husband, which then messes up everything with the second husband? I mean, even even when you say that she doesn't have to separate from both. It's still messy, messy. Um, I wanted to say the Gemara here goes on also to, to speak a little bit more about this question of having one valid witness as compared to testimony by other people. Um, so if we jump a bit on Ahmad, on Ahmad Bet. Um, okay, um, right, so there's a discussion here and it's said in the name of Shmuel, you know, again, in, the, in this discussion of Rav's position, um, you know, who, who, which, which witness is she, you know, who, whose testimony is followed and, and which position is, is upheld that she go back to the first one or stay with the second or frankly, neither. And then the Gemara asks, Ula. didn't Ula say, So didn't Ula say that anytime that you find that the Torah will accept the testimony of one witness, and that goes to the other cases as well, then that testimony is equivalent to the testimony of two witnesses, meaning it's not considered wimpy testimony, according to Uli here, right? The idea is that it's either sufficient or it's not sufficient. So then the question is, what happens when you have the Envarav Shalachad if you have one witness's testimony and you have two witnesses saying something contradictory? You know, how can you say that the one view is going to be upheld against the two? So the Gemara wants to know, what is this case? 
what are we talking about? We're talking about a case where there was uh there were two people who said that he was dead, and they were then later disqualified from giving testimony. You know, they were found to be not reliable witnesses for whatever reason. And then so so this enters like a whole um, you know, the whole arena of witnesses and the reliability of witnesses and what happens when you have contradictory witnesses and what happens when you have uh, what we'll talk about much later in Masachat Makot specifically, you know, when you have somebody who comes and says, those people couldn't be witnesses, they weren't even in the place that they're supposed to be giving testimony about. Um, so Rev. Nechemia very briefly says, Tatani, we've got a breita, Rev. Nechemia Omer, kol makom she'aminu tarah edachad halach achar rov deot. So every time that the Torah relies on one witness, rather than saying that it's established as as strongly as two, the testimony of two people, um, Rabbi Nechami says, no, you should follow the majority opinion. Meaning if you have eight echad, if you have one witness giving testimony and it kind of flies in the face of everything else, then then that's not going to get greater credibility. Uh, as then they come to establish the testimony. Remember, we... I don't know if we haven't talked about this at all. Women are not considered eligible to give testimony, or very rarely. There are certain times when their testimony is upheld. And so in this case, it says they established the testimony of two women against one man, as if it was the testimony of two men against one man. Meaning they're not knocking the testimony because it's coming from women. It's simply a matter of the numbers of of um, two being more reliable than one to begin with. The moment you have more people who have seen the same thing, it um, numbers count in this case, right? Like the idea is, uh, yes, theoretically they could all be lying. You could all knock them out in their reliability. But if they're valid witnesses, then you would think that the numbers of having more people testifying to the same thing is going to be considered more acceptable. Um, and then I'm jumping a little bit, right? Um, but again, we have this statement that kind of it's rephrased for every Nachemia. Omer, komakom she'eminu Torah erachad. So in the revision has it be two women against one woman and two men against one man. But the moment you say that you've got two women's testimony, the testimony of two women going up against the testimony of one man, um, that's considered equal because this, you know, the women's testimony is inherently somewhat, depending on the circumstances, called into question. So the it's a refinement of the first statement in the name of Rabbi Nehemiah, where you say, well, the testimony is the same as if it were men. And the answer is, well, it's the same as if it were men, if it's in contrast to another woman's testimony. But if it's in contrast to a man's testimony, they're going to uphold the man's uh, testimony more whether that's legitimate or not well halakhically it's legitimate whether it's a more honest appraisal of their actual reliability reliability as witnesses i think we can hold that question in advance look i think these are complicated situations the daf's going to spend a lot of time on this you know for the next few dapim um i know on that question <laughs> you know is two women better than one man um, complicated. I, I, I would think today, you know, we would, a bezin, it would be very hard for us not to figure out a way to make that work. Um, yeah, I, 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 well, let me say, 
I think that you're right that the Beit Din in this day and age would have the capacity to make that work. I think that there's enough technology or or ways to go about it to if you work hard you can find it. I'm not as I'm not so convinced that all of the Batei Din. This is my cynicism of having spent too much time in the public sphere of Israeli Batei Din, where people who are, you know, legitimately suffering as Agunot, for example, um, you know, theoretically could be freed if people would um, put. I, I'm not talking about messing with the halacha, right? Just make sure that you can check the testimony, that you could investigate, you know, the reliability of certain things. That can then then I think that we could. I think a lot more could be done by the modern Batidin, whether they really do it, whether they're really willing to do it. And again, I'm not talking about messing with any of the standards that we have established all these generations. Um, I'm a little cynical. I wish I weren't. Oof. Well, on that depressing note, that's our death discussion for the day. <laughs> Bring us review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.